Hi, everyone. Welcome to our webinar, Lessons from the Pandemic, Weaknesses in K-12 Teacher Education Policies, Fuel Inequities Facing English Learners. Um, before we begin, we have just a couple housekeeping notes. If you have any problems, please contact us by email at events at migrationpolicy.org or call 202-266-1929. You can use the Q&A chat function on the right of the screen throughout the webinar. We do encourage you to ask questions anytime during the, um, during the presentations and we'll uh, get to those questions towards the end of the, uh, of the webinar. You can also send an email to events at migrationpolicy.org with your question or tweet to at migrationpolicy or hashtag MPI discuss. Um, and we wanted to let you know that the slides and audio from today's webinar will be available um, after the event at migrationpolicy.org slash events. So for those who are not familiar with us, uh, the National Center on Immigrant Integration Policy at MPI works on a number of areas, primarily in education and training, but also in other areas like language access and governance of integration policy. Uh, like so many, we have uh, shifted a lot of our work at this point to looking at what's happening with English learners in the, during the pandemic. A few weeks ago, we had a series, the first in our series of webinars on COVID and L's, and we discussed what's happening at the state and district level to help meet the needs of English learners in remote learning. And around that time, we also released a policy brief on the challenges English learners and their families have faced and some recommendations for policy, which you can access on our website. You see the URL there. And we also have a commentary from earlier in the year on the role community-based organizations have played in the role of uh, in the response to the pandemic. Today we have uh, three amazing panelists with us. We're going to dig a little bit deeper um, by talking about teachers and their professional learning. Our webinar today is a little bit different format than what we typically do. I'll be moderating a panel and asking questions to our panelists, and then at the end uh, we'll have time for your questions, but as I mentioned, please do um, add them to uh, ask our questions in the Q&A panel as we go along. So I'm going to introduce the three panelists really briefly, but you have all our um, full bios in these slides, which you'll be able to access after the event. Our first panelist, Dr. Laura Becker, is a professor of TESOL at Hunter College in New York City, and she has deep knowledge of our topic today as a teacher educator herself and through her research. She's currently the president of the New York State TESOL Association and has written numerous books and articles on teacher preparation to serve English learners. Roberta Rodriguez is the president and CEO of Teach Plus, which is an organization focused on teacher leadership to advance equity in, in K-12 education. Before Teach Plus, he was deputy assistant for education in the Obama White House, and before that, an education policy advisor to the late Senator, Senator Edward Kennedy. And we also have Dr. Diane Stairfenner, who's the president of Support Ed, a small business that provides professional development and technical assistance on English learner education to a wide variety of clients. She's a pro prolific writer and frequent speaker on effective teaching practices and began her education career as an ESL teacher in Fairfax, Virginia public schools here in the DC area. So we are just thrilled and honored to have all of you with us today. Um, I think this is the start of a really important conversation about policy, policy solutions to the issues that were caused by or even just brought to light by the pandemic. Uh, lots of folks have heard about how difficult schooling has been for English learner students, whether because of a lack of access to digital devices or other stresses um, due to coping with the pandemic. But there's been less attention paid to um, the experiences of teachers during this time, uh, and also on how education policies and practices of the last decades have led us to some extent to where we are today. So I want to start with that historical context and ask each of our panelists um, some, some questions about where we stood with English learner education and teacher education policies prior to COVID. So, Laura, I'd like to start with, uh, with you. For our participants who aren't familiar with teacher education, can you give us a brief overview of certification requirements to teach English learners for both uh, English learner specialists and for general education teachers? Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me here today. Um, so, in terms of teacher preparation, um, pre-pandemic pre and continuing through now, 
Um, as you can imagine, across the United States, there's a lot of variation in how um, teachers are certified to teach in public schools to serve pre-K through 12th grade English language learners. Um, in about 10 states, it's actually a standalone certification area, just like becoming an English teacher or a math teacher, you become an ESL teacher. Um, in a lot of uh, the other states, it's simply an add-on. It's a set of courses, maybe three courses, maybe five, and it's called an extension or an endorsement, and you already have a prior certification and you add on to it. Another thing that's, I think, important is that only a few states require a master's degree for permanent teacher licensure. Um, New York State is one of them. So a lot of teachers um, around the country are getting bachelor's degrees in education. Um, if they are getting that endorsement, it might even just be an exam. It's not even a full set of courses. And across the nation, there's been a real issue around making sure that all teachers get coursework in teaching English language learners. Believe it or not, even though, for example, in New York State, we have such a high population of English learners in the school, we don't have a required course on English language learners as part of teacher certification. Um, same applies for school leaders. Um, there's no required course on for school leaders on English language learners, which seems kind of shocking. Now, some states like Florida and California have built it in, um, but it's, it's still kind of, it's a, it's a major issue, I think, across teacher ed in terms of really preparing teachers well to serve that population. And thank you. And um, continuing on sort of through the continuum of, of, of where, um, what teachers do, uh, Diane, once teachers are certified and in the classroom, how do states handle recertification or continuing education? And to what degree do teachers get ongoing professional development on English learners? Right, it's very similar to what Laura described at the pre-certification level. So once teachers are in the classroom, unfortunately we're not seeing a lot of state requirements uh, related to professional development required on English learners for recertification. Um, my group at Support Ed, we just did a study and we only found that four states have some kind of state policy in place requiring professional development or coursework on English learners for recertification purposes. And in general, recertification happens once about every five years and with some type of professional development or coursework requirements. But we found that the vast majority of states, it's just not a priority for teachers, even knowing that across the nation, English learners are about 10% of the K-12 population. Wow, that's um, kind of amazing. Just, yeah. you know, these are, are the students are in every state in every uh, this in, in so many districts, and yet um, there is not a lot of uh, state guidance or uh, state requirements. Um, the other issue, as I was preparing uh, for this, one of the things that I've been thinking a lot about is um, what we've been hearing about teachers reti teachers retiring or deciding not to continue teaching because of the pandemic. And so that's something that's really been on my mind a lot. And, and Roberto, I wanted to ask you about um, this, this issue. Um, folks have been talking for a long time about the teacher shortage and the lack of racial and cultural diversity in the teacher pipeline. What can you tell us about these trends and how they've affected English learners and other uh, traditionally underserved students? Sure, Julie, and uh, thank you uh, for the opportunity to be with you today. I'm delighted to be here uh, with Diane and with Laura and, and this conversation. You know, it's important to acknowledge the state of our teaching profession at large as we're thinking about some of the challenges we're talking to, about today and uh, some of the uh, barriers in front of us relative to recruitment, to teacher turnover, uh, to, to teacher shortage, and also to the gaps that we've already started talking about in preparation, uh, both in-service and uh, pre-service preparation. So, you know, the enrollment in our teacher preparation programs um, since 2010 has declined. We have more than a third fewer uh, teacher candidates in our pipeline than, uh, than we used to have. And um, a lot of our state leaders and district level leaders are struggling with persistent year-to-year -year teacher shortages uh, across the country in high demand fields. That includes 
uh, in uh, fields to support our emergent bilingual students and our English learners alongside STEM and special education and others. Um, and then we have a broader public perception challenge. Um, you know, for the first time in 2018, the, a majority of parents have said they don't want their kids uh, to seek a profession uh, or a career in teaching because of low salaries and challenges in the working conditions, a lack of opportunity for career advancement and career pathways. So, you know, there's a wage penalty that still is um, faced by so many of our teachers relative to other uh, careers. Our teachers earn on average 78 cents on every dollar. Uh, compared to other uh, careers, and we have uh, um, a turnover rate uh, still that is really uh, a challenge, and that is exacerbated when we look at our teachers of color uh, in our system. Um, we studied this at Teach Plus and found that um, so many of our uh, African American and, Lat and Latino teachers in our system uh, are reporting feeling undervalued or having opportunities for agency and autonomy and uh, advancement and leadership and bear a higher cost uh, than some of their other uh, peers. So, you know, th those those challenges, I think, really um, are compounded when we think about um, uh, our, our teachers in our English learner classrooms. And as has been referenced, you know, we have a far greater number of our classrooms with English learners than we did before. That population has grown dramatically uh, since the 1990s uh, to over 5 million today in, in many of our classrooms. And so we have some of these gaps both in pre-service and in in-service in terms of being able to provide uh, adequate skills and uh, support to our teachers to meet uh, the, the needs of our English learners and our emergent bilinguals. So um, uh, several of you have, have sort of alluded to this, but I wanted to um, ask everyone a question to sort of bring these challenges of teacher education into what we see actually in classrooms. So um, Laura, I'm, I'm going to start again with you on, on this round, but I'll, I want to pose this question to everybody. What have you seen as the main challenges in teacher education and professional development over the last few years, and how do those challenges connect with what's happening in classrooms? Well, uh, we could talk for a long time about that, but just to kind of continue, I think what Roberto brought up, uh, I obviously serve New York City um, schools, which is the largest public school system in the world. Um, it's five times the size of the LA public schools, for example. This is it's a vast system. So in that system, you have a, such a huge, huge range. Even the same building, you have completely different working environments. So even though you might be serving the same um, types of students, have the same kind of resources, the same salary, I think um, what I've read in terms of the research on teacher retention, it really has to do with the school culture and the school environment. And when teachers feel uh, marginalized, and unfortunately, teachers of, of English learners tend to, by association, be on the margins. They are pushing in or pulling out or trying to collaborate, um, and they're not seen with the same regard as a science teacher or the math teacher. They're seen as sort of a glorified paraprofessional, even though they might have a master's degree in, you know, in applied linguistics. So it's a real, um, again, as Roberta said, a perception problem that continues when you are serving emergent bilinguals. Um, to, to kind of get that sense of efficacy and to be recognized for your professional knowledge. Right. Um, Diane, what would you add to that? Please <laughs> <laughs> skip. Yes, I will go to Roberto and then we will come right back to you. Sure. Uh, I, we just, yeah, we need to think about opportunities for reshaping our teacher preparation, um, you know, even before our teachers reach the classroom, as well as greater opportunities for professional learning and for advancement and leadership for our teachers in the classroom, right? So on that first point, you know, we need more deeper and more diverse preparation that's customized to where our teachers will teach. Uh, you know, we know that our, the majority of our teachers teach in hyper-local markets, 
they choose to teach within 15 miles of their hometown. And so that's an opportunity for us to think about how do we deep, more deeply um, provide clinical practice experiences that expose our teachers early to uh, the coursework, the, um, the mentorship, the support that they need to be successful early in the profession, because we know that, so, that the majority of our teachers that do leave the profession leave within the first five years. So there's some really promising models around thinking about residencies, uh, investments, um, and grow your own programs. I know in New York, there's a, a teacher, a, a teacher residency program that prepares uh, some teachers of color with a great level of depth relative to um, uh, getting ready for success in the classroom. And we know that those programs pay off, right? Those programs show that 80 to 90 percent of our teachers prepared through those types of residencies stay um, in the classroom, uh, and even 80 percent after five years stay in the classroom. I also think we need more opportunities for career pathways and for uh, opportunities for our paraprofessionals um, working with our English learners to uh, enter the teaching profession and to become licensed and certified. You know, and here it's important to point out that we used to have at the federal level a depth of investment um, that had the context of a civil rights law with the Bilingual Education Act. We were, you know, prior to 2001, you know, about 20 years ago, investing $72 million a year in pre-service programs and career ladders for paraprofessionals to enter the profession. We were also dedicating support for our uh, teachers in the teaching profession to learn more about how to meet the second language needs of students uh, and more deeply preparing them with that pedagogy and that expertise in across 700 projects across the country, $162 million that was invested in that. So we've our, our federal policy framework has moved and shifted to a block grant, and you know we've we've actually left behind some of these changes and shifts in pre-service and in in-service that we need uh, to better equip our teachers for success. Right, and I'm sure that that plays out, Diane, in the um, professional development world that you're you're in. What are you? Um, what have you seen in terms of the the challenges and how that's played out uh, in classrooms? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, my apologies for needing to skip back. <laughs> Thanks, Roberto, for taking over. Um, so there's so many issues and, you know, many that Laura and Roberto brought up, but, you know, some of the biggest issues I see in the in-service uh, professional development side is that any kind of PD that takes place is usually not sustained. It's kind of like a one-shot drive-by. It had been previously, although I know we'll be speaking about, you know, what's been happening nowadays, but I'm, I'm seeing now some promise in that the professional development that we've been doing at least is more sustained. There's more kind of buy-in with administrators and more collaboration because we're doing this virtually. It takes so much more effort now to provide high quality professional development and we're really getting a lot of the more sustained PD with the, the collaborative piece. Um, also, just some issues in the past we've seen are that often administrators are not always kind of on board and having the, the PD that, you know, sometimes will be working and the, the administrators have so much to take care of, right? So they're putting out fires, they're leaving the room to go take a phone call, they're, you know, working on just so many things um, at the same time. And we also see a lot of initiative fatigue within the buildings, within school districts, when there are so many things going on, how do English learners fit into that? Is that just kind of an afterthought or is it an integral part of the conversation? Um, and so with all of these things happening, it can be, you know, it can be super challenging. Um, and also bringing in the piece about paraprofessionals, it's so important to provide not only paraprofessionals, as you mentioned, Roberto, the career ladders to get to the classroom, but also for those who are in that role as paraprofessional to provide schools and teachers guidance on how do we utilize their expertise in, in a sound way, because they do come with so many talents and just so much promise to be able to provide emergent bilinguals and multilingual learners, but how can we best utilize what, what they do bring? 
Right. Um, I, I want to move now into sort of this present moment of um, the pandemic and ask you um, to share a little bit about what you've heard from folks on the ground. Um, what are some of the professional challenges that teachers of English learners are experiencing teaching remotely or in socially distant settings? Uh, and Diane, uh, if, if you don't mind, we'll um, start with you on that one. Sure. Um, I can start off with, you know, there's so many issues right now. Um, a lot of the, you know, lack of time trying to find the students and to help them log on, just like dealing with the technology, getting the technology out to students. Um, ESL teachers are functioning in many ways as social workers, making those kind of porch visits, helping kids get, get set up. The advocacy is just going through the roof right now um, and being able to, to connect with families and with students to try to motivate kids who are not always, you know, don't learn best in an online environment right now and to make those personal connections when you might not have had a face-to-face -face relationship with your students and you have to, you're the one connecting with them. Um, also, just the, uh, the aspect of having English learners or emergent bilinguals use oral language. It's such, it's such a struggle now. How do we get them talking? How do teachers learn new strategies to do that? And also teachers have to learn so much new technology now to be able to, to make all of this work. Um, and many times, you know, a lot of so much of our teacher workforce is female. So we've heard also in during the pandemic that Many times it's, you know, women who have kid, their own kids at home, um, as, you know, many of us do, how do you help your own kids who are in a virtual learning environment while you're supposed to be teaching at the same time and reaching out to families and connecting? So, and many times, you know, in general, people who tend to be leaving the workforce are more women right now. And I'm just wondering how that's going to play out, as we mentioned earlier, with the teacher shortage and early retirements and uh, furloughs and leaves of absence. Right, yeah, this is uh, all of these things coming together. Um, Roberto, I want to ask you the same question, and then Laura will go to you as well about um, the challenges that we're seeing right now. Sure, Julie. Well, I think the first thing to point out is the obvious, which is that this pandemic has laid bare and exacerbated a lot of the inequities that uh, our students and educators working in our high poverty uh, and high need schools have already been facing, right, and wrestling with, whether those are looking at connectivity and digital equity, access to internet and access to continuity of learning, whether that's thinking about the, the financial health of those schools and or lack thereof relative to resources, uh, you know, and and so at the same time, I think our educators uh, working with our uh, emergent bilinguals and their families, I have seen have just gone above and beyond. They have been tremendous, tenacious uh, advocates and leaders uh, because they understand their kids and their families and understand some of the policy challenges and economic and health challenges that are corollaries to the educational challenges here, right? If our students are in families that are being disrupted economically um, or, or are food insecure, that's going to impact their ability to show up, to be able to engage, to be able to progress in their learning. So I've seen a lot of our uh, educators just go above and beyond in reaching out and doubling down, as Diane says, on the relationships, right, and, and, the, and the connections with parents in this moment. I think that's actually been a big um, uh, uh, silver lining in this pandemic is that I think our teachers are able to see and connect with parents and with family members in real ways. Um, certainly some of the challenges around oral proficiency uh, we've encountered uh, with some teachers, but we've also seen some really interesting solutions our teachers moving to encourage their students to use Flipgrid and other ways to connect with them to be able to capture their progression and oral proficiency. And then our teachers just really showing up to uh, provide uh, technology, ensure that students have access to that uh, as an opportunity for continuity of learning. And, um, you know, so that's been, that's been really important. And I think teachers being the voice with other decision makers, with principals and with district leaders to encourage students to be able to keep their assigned uh, hardware at home or, you know, for our teachers, some of our teachers who, who work and teach on the border where our students are crossing, um, you know, on a daily basis. 
to be able to be able to give them the access to be able to take that that technology back home and stay connected. Uh, I just think that level of connectivity and that relationship uh, between our educators, our students, and between our educators and their families of our students is just so important in this moment we're in. Yeah, absolutely, and I'm I'm so glad you brought up those um, those um, positive um, thoughts about the uh, when, when we get into these conversations, it can tend to um, get into the challenges, and we stay in the in the mode of the you know the things that we're worried about. So I'm I'm just so glad that you brought that up, uh, Laura. I wanted to uh, yeah pose a question to you too about what you've been seeing. Um, with the challenges of, and or maybe some of the good things um, that uh, teachers and English learners uh, are experiencing right now. Well, <laughs> I want to try to focus on the positive then, I guess. Um, I think it's, I think overall what I would say is that everything that was true pre-pandemic is just intensified now. Um, teachers uh, have all of English learners um, tend to work in high poverty schools. They tend to be in urban centers. Um, and there is, again, tremendous variation of what an English learner, a student is going to experience in a, an affluent suburban district versus an under-resourced um, urban district. And I think those stressors are just more obvious now. So, for example, kids like Roberto said who are um, living in immigrant communities who are disproportionately affected by COVID um, are now also in schools that aren't open, um, that are having schedules where teachers, more than half of the teachers aren't in the building either. Um, so they're in and they're out of the building um, and things like ESL services, which already got canceled for almost any reason, are now really getting canceled. And, and the truth is it's been almost seven months for students that have not had any um, language support or direct English language development or native language instruction. Um, so that is, I think, creating, again, we always have a summer, a real differential between kids who um, have access to literacy programs, enrichment programs in the summer versus a lot of our English learners. And now you just extend that. And this school year, um, it's very, very rocky. Um, like Diane mentioned, we have students who um, don't have the internet, have one device for five kids in the family. Um, and to be honest, a Chromebook is not the best quality device, you know? So it, it's, a, it's really a challenge to um, get on and engage if, how, how is that really happening? So there's a lot of um, missing students, as Diane said. And the teachers also are under tremendous stress. Now, yes, what they've always done, they're doing even more so. Like Roberta said, the advocacy, the connecting to the families, the trying to find you know, new ways to do things. And what I've seen is just an incredible blossoming um, using social media of teacher-to-teacher -teacher support. So for a lot of English language teachers, um, ESL teachers, dual language, bilingual teachers, they might be the only one in their building. Um, they don't necessarily have a large community of, you know, 10 other fifth grade teachers. They might be the only one. They might be itinerant. So using social media, I've just seen a tremendous growth in groups, specifically born out of this pandemic. Um, the same is true in higher ed. For those of us who prepare teachers, there's so much activity in terms of how do we help create the kinds of learning experiences for teachers that will support them because we ourselves, we're not teaching remotely in our careers as, as teachers. So now we're here trying to help and support the teachers. The teachers are the leaders now. We have to really celebrate and acknowledge teacher leadership. Um, in, and it's just so clear that they are the ones who are leading the rest of us, the building leaders, the administrators, the supervisors, everyone else. So I think that's been a, a very rich place to see how teachers are really um, rising to the challenges. That is an excellent segue into a question that I had for Roberto, um, because uh, one of the challenges for EL specialists is that they don't just provide direct services, as, as Laura just said, but they also provide expertise um, to other teachers in their building or in their district or in their state. 
What policies and practices can school leaders put in place to help EL specialists carry out their role as uh, teacher leaders and mentors, both now while we're in, uh, in remote instruction and then going forward? Sure. Well, I think, um, you know, we are, uh, as has been pointed out, we're just in unprecedented territory this year, and things are upside down relative to um, opportunity and, um, and what is the normal of this school year. So, you know, I think what we've been really focused on, and we just completed a study, Barriers to Bridges, that looked at some of the challenges and insights that our teachers are lending uh, through this pandemic, um, elevating the expertise of our teachers and creating the space for that expertise to uh, to live and and have currency and value in the decision making that our principal, our building leaders make, as well as that our district system leaders make, is really paramount in the moment. So it's thinking about as we're crafting plans for reentry and for continuity of learning, uh, plans for health and safety uh, for our educators or for students plans for social and emotional learning and for meeting the needs, the wellness needs of our students and of our education workforce, that we create the space for our teachers' voices and expertise to be captured uh, and to be reflected in those decisions, right? So uh, I've seen a lot of leaders that have been making space to hear from the community um, and a lot of leaders that have been making, that have been really working to try to develop plans for reentry in the moment, you know, as, as schools came back into session and some of them came back in person. Uh, but I think throughout the arc of this year, we need to see more of an opportunity for distributed leadership in our schools. And that means really working in um, developing the skill set and the uh, attributes and orientation of our principals to create space for our, uh, our teacher leaders to connect and to thrive. That means making sure we're, for instance, creating opportunities for collaboration, for active collaboration throughout the school week. I've seen a lot of systems that are starting to move toward a day that's set aside um, while they're working to try to uh, create concurrent le um, continuous learning plans and blended learning plans for students, setting aside a day for teachers to collaborate and come together to work vertically and horizontally in the school. That's really very important. Uh, as you mentioned, Julie, uh, making sure that if, if our teachers don't have the opportunity to be together day to day in the building with those individuals that have that expertise around supporting our English learners and our emergent bilinguals, how do we create the space virtually for those individuals to really uh, lend their expertise to the rest of their peers? Uh, it's going to take that, that level of collaboration, peer-to-peer -peer collaboration this year, uh, and some non-traditional scheduling. Uh, and some and some calibration around our expectations, right? I think that's the other important thing as we look at practice is that scope and sequence this year doesn't look the way it it does uh, normally, and so we have to provide uh, the flexibility and the grace and the support for all of our educators to be able to course adjust there, uh, and to um, and we we need to provide some trust and some support for them in that effort. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's such an important point that um, teachers are not necessarily getting great guidance from districts or from states in terms of um, I've seen teachers pose as, you know, Laura said, people are using social media, which I get to eavesdrop on. And I've been hearing people ask, um, you know, we don't really have uh, some folks call them power standards or, you know, what are with the, the huge number of standards that we have, you know, what do I really need to focus on? And I think that's been that's always been a little bit difficult for teachers. And I I think um, there's there's a special uh, uh, level of, of concern that teachers are really not sure what those um, those specific standards are, or I think what the what the key activities are that they should be having kids doing that they really want to make sure they don't miss. So um, it's it's really you know again very thankful for the level of sharing that we have seen um, in, in terms of being online for Twitter, Facebook, all of those things. Um, and Diane, I want to ask you, um, how have schools and districts shifted gears in both um, the content and the format of the, their professional development? And I'm sure this issue of uh, work is, is will come up in your answer. And um, what are some of the best practices that you've seen uh, in the last six months? 
Sure. Um, yeah, obviously in terms of the format, right? No more. <laughs> We're not seeing anyone and I miss it so much. I miss working with teachers face to face and doing that ongoing professional development and professional learning. But, you know, we all shut down kind of mid-March, right, to some degree or other. Um, so in terms of, you know, the content, we are, you know, akin to the power standards. We're looking at what's the most essential that we need to look at right now to support our English learners and emergent bilinguals. And, um, you know, in terms of best practices, we're working now so closely with uh, district administrators, with organizational administrators to determine that. And we're always suggesting, you know, reach out to your teachers, ask them, what do they need? You know, and they'll tell you. And the, it's really opened up a lot of more kind of two-way conversations that weren't necessarily happening before. Um, and it's always been, I've been trying to just constantly pause and reflect, you know, what, what is, what's the positive that can come out of all of this, right? Moving forward, what can we take with us? And that's certainly one thing that I've seen is this level of collaboration and elevating the role as, meant, as you've mentioned of the ESL teacher um, through this. And some of the, the best practices, just one that um, kind of strikes me off the top is right right after shutdown, the, a district in Iowa, for example, reached out to us and we did an online book study with all of their teachers, not just their ESL teachers, with about 500 content teachers across the district. We did, a, sorry, an online study about culturally relevant teaching. They were all talking about the same thing. And it was, it was just so powerful that, you know, during this time of turmoil, we could all be having these similar conversations around supporting English learners and multilingual learners and recognizing their strengths first and foremost before talking about meeting their needs. So, and within the practice of that, elevating the role of the ESL teacher to be helpful and instrumental in facilitating these conversations. So that's been um, just a, a lot of this has opened up people's creativity, really, that I've seen, and it's been it's been amazing. Honestly, um, we're talking about leadership and advocacy in certain school districts. Um, in in areas like in the Midwest and not in your big states like California or New York, um, but other states that have these populations that haven't always been served. And these voices, these leadership voices really are rising up and people, in my opinion, are listening to English learner specialists even more throughout this because they're boots on the ground. They're working with the kids and the families and doing this phenomenal advocacy for them. So I, I do feel like their, their voices are definitely getting heard. Um, we're working with some districts now in ongoing projects where we're doing coaching and observations, but in virtual settings, right? So it's been amazing to just be kind of eavesdropping in a way and seeing what's happening and offering services um, to, in terms of curriculum and scaffolding and working with content teachers who really want, really want to help. Um, and many of these teachers are seeing that supports we're giving English learners are also helping students who need a little extra support in a virtual learning setting. So it's been just kind of mutually beneficial. Of course, there are, you know, continue to be just so many challenges, but some best practices are definitely bubbling up to the top. Great. And um, speaking of best practices, Laura, I know this, um, the issue of student teaching is uh, very much of, uh, in your, of your professional interest, your research interest, and so I wanted to ask you uh, about um, how student teaching is going right now. It's one of the most important components, of course, of a undergraduate pre-service teacher education. How are um, uh, students completing those requirements these days, and what, what have been their experiences so far uh, this semester or even at the end well, of the semester? Well, that's a really good question. Um, well, the I guess, you know, one of the two, two positives, I would say, uh, maybe three. One is that um, every student teacher right now knows how to teach um, remotely, <laughs> um, which uh, is going to just benefit them when there is face-to-face -face instruction, because most of these tools, like Roberto mentioned, Flipgrid, you know, whether it's Nearpod, Padlet, any of these tools, um, teachers sort of like self-selected before, I think, how interested they were. Faculty kind of opted in or out, and now there's just no opting out. Everyone. Faculty has to get with it. Student teachers are getting with it, and I think that's going to make them very powerful when they are able to go back to school. 
Um, the second piece is that gap that's always existed between school districts and teacher ed programs. Um, although there's so many great examples of professional development schools, strong clinical partnerships between universities and schools, um, there's still a, very much a problem of, of a disconnect between teacher ed and uh, what teachers are experiencing um, on the ground. So just as an example, for our student teachers in CUNY, which is the City University of New York, which is, a, there are a lot of student teachers across all the CUNY campuses, um, the New York City public schools created um, passwords for them so they could actually access the Google Meets and be part of the student teaching because otherwise how would they actually participate in remote teaching? And you can imagine the challenges around setting that up. Um, but it, it, I think it helps districts to realize that, yes, you can say, oh, we're all theory and we don't want to have anything to do with teacher ed, but we have a pipeline issue, like Roberto said. So we, school districts need to work with institutions of higher ed. So it, it, it kind of goes both ways because the third piece is that student teachers in a lot of cases um, have a little more time they're getting a grade for it, and perhaps they are more current with technologies, so they can be really helpful to classroom teachers. So we've, I've had um, teachers that are partner teachers for us calling us saying, can we have a Hunter student teacher because I need help here. This is so overwhelming. Um, and we, um, as we really promote multilingual um, college students, uh, to come into the profession of teaching, they have tremendous linguistic resources to provide schools. Um, so there is a lot of symbiosis, I think, that can happen. Um, and we don't have the issue of sometimes the challenges, um, at least where I am, for student teachers commuting, working, living. In a way, being home gives them a chance to focus on the, the student teaching follow up with students, et cetera. But it, is, it has been quite a lift to get all of those student teachers um, into the classrooms. And this fall, I think we're gonna learn a lot um, so that we can be in better shape. I just wanna mention one more thing that's sometimes not talked about, which is student teaching is generally the culminating experience of, of a teacher preparation program. But because field work is such a big part of all clinical teacher, you know, clinically rich teacher ed programs, like, for example, in New York State, teachers have to do 200 hours of field work prior to student teaching. So that's incorporated into other courses. So um, those have been really challenging, and we have always used a lot of video um, uh, to do simulations, to do analysis, um, but we still need to have live interaction. So, for example, tutoring programs. ESL um, students a lot of times get free tutoring, and after-school programs, Community-based programs, a lot public libraries are huge places, you know, great spaces. So we can connect a lot of our teacher ed students to these community-based organizations um, in ways we never could before and provide English learners great additional tutoring services to compensate for the lack of teaching during the day and strengthen those relationships between higher ed and, um, you know, nonprofit and community-based organizations. Great. Um, you know, we've gotten a, a number of really great questions in the Q&A, and I want to make sure we get to those. Um, if um, folks who uh, still have questions in their mind, if you haven't added them into the Q&A, um, go ahead and do that. But um, let me let me go ahead and address a few of these. There were a couple of um, clarification questions. Um, uh, first one for Laura and then one for Diane. Uh, Laura, what's the name of the program in New York that's a Grow Your Own Teachers for Minority Students? I think Roberto's talking about Relay. Is that the one you're referencing, Roberto? Relay New York City Teaching Fellows? Yeah, the New York City Teaching Fellows, yeah, was one that I was I was referencing. There's so many um, programs. I mean, uh, Chicago, Boston both have great programs. And, you know, I just want to applaud you, Laura, because you, for your leadership and for mentioning the professional development schools model, which is in our traditional colleges of education and is really about how do we deepen the connection and the preparation of our teacher candidates through that connection with, with through a close connection between higher education and our school districts. 
and make sure that, you know, our teachers are uh, have a depth of preparation and induction and mentorship and that symbiotic mm-hmm. relationship also between our candidates and veteran teachers in that in that experience is really just so rich. So those are the types of models that we should be thinking about pushing forward uh, as we and, and hopefully we can hold on to that depth of connection and partnership on the other side of this pandemic and grow that because those are the types of arrangements and preparation experiences that keep our teachers um, as assets yeah. to their students learning on the other end. I just want to also throw in if, if that person's interested um, is New York City Teach. That's a great program that focuses on um, supporting um, men of color into into the teaching profession. Actually, they have um, a uh, a webinar tomorrow. I'll try to send it in the chat to you. Um, and I think I know a lot of the males of color who've gone through our program. They tend to be, of course, in the minority. Like Diane said, mostly females. Um, those programs have given them mentors um, who are educators, and that's really helped them, you know, persist and stay in the profession. Laura, I think you, um, the name of that group, um, you went out just for that, the, the important word. Can you say the name of the group again? Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it's New York City Men Teach. Okay. I'll, put it, I'll send it to Lisa to post. Okay, perfect. I wasn't sure. I don't know if that was just me, but the, 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 the key word in that sentence was the one I didn't hear. Uh, another um, uh, clarification, Diane, what's the name of the book that was used in the study of culturally relevant teaching that you did with the 500 teachers? Yeah, you know, I actually misspoke. I said it was a book study, but it was an online course. But um, my co-author, Sydney Snyder, and myself, are we are coming out with a new culturally responsive teaching book that should be out through Corwin this January or February. So it's called, uh, we, we have a work in progress. It basically will be culturally responsive teaching for multilingual learners, tools for equity. Excellent. Super exciting. I can't wait to read that. Um, let's see. Uh, Diane, let me actually just stick with you for a minute. What are a couple of key understandings or skills that new teachers of multilingual students should know and be able to do? Um, this is this person speaking from a teacher ed program here in, or there in Massachusetts. And I think this is, um, you know, as, as we've been discussing that um, the, 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 dynamic of, of going online has caused people to rethink and shift. Um, there may be some teachers out there who have had English learners but haven't really thought before now about what the supports are. So um, for, for newer teachers or teachers who are newer to English learners, what are sort of the top things that you are trying to get across to them or, or that you would hope that they would um, start to think about? Right. And we really have to, you know, kind of whittle it down and narrow it down. When you're a new teacher, it's so overwhelming, right? There are so many things to focus on. Um, so if I had to name like a top three of the, I would name um, being able to advocate for students and also for yourselves um, and developing your own voice as an advocate. How do you fit into your school? How do you collaborate? How do you kind of push a little bit when needed in just the right way to get what is right for your students and also for yourself? So I would uh, think of advocacy. Also a top skill or understanding to come armed with is collaboration. And how do you collaborate with general ed teachers and also your administrators and figuring out your role um, in that process so you're not just seen as an aide or um, where you're seen as someone offering great expertise in, in language and content and uh, culture as well. And the third uh, area I would recommend would be in, in terms of providing supports and scaffolds for students at different levels of proficiency. So that's, that's a skill that is absolutely essential. And then the advocacy and collaboration are kind of woven through all of that. Once you, you're, you have these tools in your toolbox and the research, how do you advocate and how do you collaborate with others to ensure that general education teachers are also using these strategies that are effective with English learners? So I would focus on those three first as key skills and understandings and expand from there. Julie, if I could jump on just one thing that I need to say, I'm burning in my chair. Um, so those three things, 100%, but they have to be on a strong foundation of understanding language acquisition and uh, a heteroglossic stance. 
So we need educators who value multilingualism, um, of course, embody it, and they need to understand how not just to scaffold content, but understand the language demands of the content areas and teach English and native language wherever possible um, so that students can be successful in school. Because I think when at ESL bilingual educators are experts in, in language, schools will listen to them. If they don't perceive them as having more than just some nice strategies, we, um, we take the soul really out of our profession. So we must stay as professionals, as experts in the development of language. Um, and when we can really serve, like Diane said, our content area colleagues by identifying language demands and supporting those through our English language development um, work, we, the, our value is seen. So I think that's, I just need to say that. <laughs> yeah, and if I can piggyback and absolutely support that as well, and it goes hand in hand with then elevating the role, right, of the ESL or the EL teacher. Once you, you have that expertise in, you know, recognizing and teaching to language demands and pulling that out and having the linguistic expertise that serves a great purpose to elevate your role. And so others see you as having this, this vast knowledge to bring to the table. Absolutely. And, oh, I could just jump in on that, Julie. Yeah. So, you know, Laura and Diane bring deep expertise in, uh, in the pre-service and in-service work here in terms of developing our teachers to that end. But I just want to punctuate how important that is because that we also think about policies that reflect and affirm that, uh, that preparation for our teachers of our emergent bilinguals and our English learners. And again, I feel like we've gotten to a point as, as a country where we are substituting a lot of English language arts curriculum and PD for the more specialized support that we need around understanding the pedagogy of second language acquisition and linguistic development at large. And we, and we have to get back to, um, more opportunities to prepare our teachers more deeply toward that end before they even leave their their uh, clinical prep, as well as greater opportunities, you know, um, as Diane mentions, to be able to meet that need for the folks that are already in the profession. Uh, and so, you know, the resources and the prioritization of that in the context of teacher prep is something that every State Department of Education can look at and can get more serious about. Uh, and at the federal level where we can think about how do we um, really recover and reestablish uh, the teaching and learning of our emergent bilinguals as a national priority, given how uh, large a population we have in our, in our public education system. I'm hopeful of that uh, as an outcome. And I'm also hopeful of, about the wonderful advocacy and voice that our educators of our English learners can bring uh, to this work, as, as has been discussed. You know, when we move that voice beyond the four walls of a classroom and our educators join our community activists and join our families to stand up for the rights and the needs of our immigrant families and our English language, English language and emergent bilingual families, that that, that's such a powerful thing. We've studied this a lot here at Teach Plus. We know how, uh, how important that voice is and how trusted that voice of educators is for families and for the public. And so we also need to encourage that level of advocacy across our communities. That is an excellent segue to uh, another uh, set of questions we've gotten in. A, a few people are um, writing in with questions about teachers working with families, and then a, a few others are talking about um, working with um, uh, non-governmental organizations, with community-based organizations. And so, um, you know, I wonder if uh, any of you, I'll, I'll just uh, let whoever wants to go first uh, speak to this question of what, how can we help teachers understand how to, you know, move beyond the four walls, as you just said, Roberto, um, to talk to, to, you know, work as partners with families, communities, with NGOs, with, um, you know, with all of the other uh, stakeholders. Um, if, 
I'm not sure who wants to take that on first. Roberta. Well, I would just a word of encouragement to all of our advocates and uh, community leaders that are joining today to think um, about explicit ways to encourage and, and create those bridges to educators to make room for them in that level of advocacy and work, right? Because I think there's a condition that we have in our profession, unfortunately, and a norm in many of our schools that does, you know, as teachers are teaching one cohort of students every day and day in day out, that does not encourage collaboration or that voice across the, beyond those four walls. So we need many, I find a lot of our educators need that invitation. And when they're able to use and exercise that voice, it unlocks a whole uh, opportunity to really think about uh, advocacy and policy and systems change in new ways. Um, so I, I, I think we can, we can begin there. And I would say there's a lot of, um, our, our educators really are seeing the needs of their students. Um, they experience those every day. They're connecting and building those relationships every day with, and with families now across the course of this pandemic. You know, we have teachers that are hosting Sunday night sessions with their, with their parents so that they have a sense of what they're gonna cover in remote learning over the course of the week. That's been a really great practice to just help parents get more involved and engaged. I'm, you know, parents, I'm hearing of teachers who's, who's, who are reporting that parents are showing up. And even if, they're, even if that's not um, an environment that they've been in before, they're showing up and, and are ready to be prepared to support their kids' education. So, um, so I think we need, to, we need to capitalize on that. Great. And, and Diane, do you want to address that? Yeah, I would also add just kind of uh, along those same lines of, you know, inviting them, like Roberta said, like having the, you know, members of the community invite teachers. Um, as, you know, when I, I think back to my own teacher education program, I just didn't know what was out there. So bringing them in also as guest speakers in classes and sharing, you know, what resources are out there, what are some ways we can connect. I would love to see, and this has happened in um, when my own, where I earned my own PhD, we had policymakers come in, community members come in and speak to us in our seminars. And it, it was just a really powerful way to know what's beyond my classroom walls and how can I connect with others that are so eager to connect with me. So that, that I would recommend that practice as well. Um, I, I would just add on that I think um, because of the the removal of a lot of um, silo walls that we've been living in, um, there is a lot of opportunity for more interconnectivity with families. So obviously the most clear one is need for translation. We know we have federal legislation, we have state legislation. I live in Long Island and in, in a community that I will not name that has not translated almost anything that's gone out to families during this crisis. And the amount of parent communication has 100% increased. I mean, you almost daily now get something from your superintendent about a COVID case or something happening. It's not translated. There are mandatory um, public meetings for, for families, right, about reopening and yet there's no live interpreters. Um, so what I've seen is a, a real opportunity for people in their in communities, um, in this community that I live, there are teachers who live here who teach English learners not in this community who are recognizing the problem. There are people who are advocates who work with um, immigrant families. There are people who, let's say work at the public library, like I mentioned before, who do a lot of ESL tutoring. We found these people kind of coalescing now um, to put pressure on the school on for interpretation and translation. And um, tonight is a financial aid night. For the first time ever in our district, it's going to have a live interpreter in Spanish. And I think it's only because of the pandemic and because all of us are coming together and it's easier for us to, to alert each other and to work together because you don't have to show up for a meeting um, that no one can show up to who works because these school districts hold meetings at 10 a.m. for I don't know who. So um, this is a really awesome time to say there's no time barrier, et cetera. But um, I think the family engagement piece just obviously starts with linguistic access. 
And there are so many tools, um, and we see a lot of schools using, whether it's talking points or et cetera, that um, can really break down some of those barriers. And that's, I think, why, like Roberto mentioned, we're seeing so many more families showing up. We held a session on how to help your child navigate the Google Classroom. We ran it in Spanish. We broke the internet. I mean, there were a thousand parents trying to come in um, and we, we didn't have enough space in the webinar for them. So again, it, it's debunking the myth that these parents are not interested. We can see it's because there are these barriers of t showing up at a time when they're working and that it's all in English. So I, I think that's a real good opportunity that we can see going forward. We are um, just at the top of the hour, but I want to um, just quickly go through one more round and ask each of you, given everything we've talked about today, um, what would be your top one or two policy recommendations at the federal, state, or local level? And if you can be um, specific, that would be uh, extra helpful. And uh, maybe we'll go Roberto and then Diane, and then uh, I'll give Laura the last word. Yeah, well, you know, there's so many to think of here, but I would say, um, Prioritizing uh, greater opportunities for teacher preparation, pre-service, uh, to build our pipeline of um, deeply prepared uh, and committed um, uh, teachers of our emergent bilingual and English learners is really important, right? And so I'd love to see greater investment, uh, scholarships, opportunities for more Grow Your Own programs and for a deeper uh, level of clinical preparation uh, just as Laura described there. Uh, I also think, you know, if I could wave my magic wand to be able to provide that opportunity for in-service um, for the level of mentoring that our early career teachers need and for the depth of um, knowledge and skill development around second language acquisition for all of our teachers, right? A level of, a level of knowledge and depth that all of our teachers can uh, benefit from because English learners, you know, that we used to be in a in a state where that was like there were certain concentrations. That's certainly still the case in concentrations in certain states and, and urban areas. But you know, we have our English learner families and our immigrant families really dispersed across the country, and in so many systems and in so many schools, those are still the invisible parents, invisible populations, populations that don't have voice or the political currency uh, to be able to um, get the resources they need. So we need to be equipping our schools to really meet those needs, regardless of, regardless of uh, where they emerge. Right, right. Diane? Sure, I'll, I'll keep it quick. Um, if I had to name my, my top recommendation, it would be, you know, just based on the findings of our recertification study, that all states should require high-quality professional development to be recertified for all teachers. Um, and within that, I would also recommend that that professional development be offer flexibility for teachers, um, you know, like Laura mentioned, they broke the internet and providing support to families in a flexible way that honors their, their families and their work commitments and their language. Um, and the same should be true for teachers. We should offer professional development that you can choose where you have a choice, how to do it, where to do it, um, and in, in what mode. So that's my top recommendation. I only get to do two, Julie, I don't know. All right, two. One is um, that everyone who becomes licensed to be a school leader, building leader, district leader, must have at least one course on um, the instruction of English language learners, and that as part of their internship as leaders, they must coach in a dual language bilingual or ESL program. Um, because the teachers can only go so far when building leaders are not knowledgeable, are resistant, are xenophobic, et cetera. The second one I guess I would say is that we have some form of an IEP for English learners, some kind of legal document that requires the school to give English language development and anywhere possible native language development to every student. 
because it, it doesn't really happen for our students. And our parents are not in the position, many of them undocumented, to advocate in schools for what is um, obviously very, very important for the academic growth and well-being of their children. Done. <laughs> Great, thank you, Lori. Yeah, those are those are excellent examples. They all were, and and I think that this you know this final round has really brought again to light the idea that the the pandemic and and what's happening in schools is as difficult as it is as it is is really allowing us to talk about some um, some I was going to say innovative solutions, but they're things a lot of them are things we've been talking about for a long time, um, but really trying to to push those forward and and make sure that these changes um, you know policy changes can be made um, for the future. Um, I want to thank everyone for joining us. I'm sorry if we didn't get to any of your questions. Um, we uh, can tr try to follow up with you if we can. Um, for those we didn't get to. Uh, again, the couple of uh, the brief and the commentary that I mentioned before on your screen, um, which you can um, view on the Migration Policy Institute website. Um, and um, please stay in touch if you have any uh, other um, concerns or um, want to uh, engage in this conversation. I think this is, as I said before, uh, the start of a conversation about policy and about what we can do to improve education for English learners moving forward. So we're really looking forward to um, engaging with you again uh, more in the future. Thank you everyone so much.